Welcome to China Tech Talk, a weekly discussion of technology and startups here in China. I am John Artman, editor in chief of TechNote, and as always, I'm joined by Matthew Brennan, founder of China Channel. And so this week, we're talking with Ling Kong, the、uh, chief technology officer of Dianrong. And Dianrong is a fascinating company because you know they started off when、uh, peer-to-peer lending、uh, first became、uh, started started to grow, and they have. Come out ahead as、uh, one of the leading、uh, peer-to-peer lending and fintech companies,、um, and so we talk a lot about a lot of different things.、Um, some things actually a little bit unexpected. I thought we were going to talk mostly about、uh, peer-to-peer lending, but we end up talking about、um, a lot more than just that. Yeah, I, I think、uh, it's got.、Uh, we touched upon a lot of points that we've been talking about、uh, in different episodes. Um, when we when we're covering the fintech area, and it's really nice to get like、uh, Ling, who's like a CTO of one of the top companies in this area, also echoing and expanding upon a lot of the points that we've covered previously. So I found that really really nice. Obviously, the guy's got you know he's he's、uh, he's deep in the, deep deep in the industry, and、um, he's able to expand and, and give a、um, a really clear concise vision of of how. Certain things are working in this industry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it was really cool to hear kind of、um, you know how their peer peer to peer lending platform works. Um, both from the you know the lender side, but also from、um, you know the、uh, the lendee side,、um, but then also to 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 hear about you know all the other things that that Yenrong is doing,、um, and then towards the end we also talked a little bit、um, about blockchain. It's pretty clear that that Ling is、um, very interested and and very passionate about blockchain, and he he proposes something that、um, he proposes an idea about blockchain that you actually don't hear. Very often, you know, these days a lot of it's、um, ICOs and Bitcoin and, and things like that.、Um, but he's able to sketch out a version of blockchain, you know, that that actually is is centralized. It's it's a private blockchain,、um, and I think really this is kind of what the Chinese government is going to be looking at when they are、um, developing their、uh, the digital currency, which which they probably already are、um, developing. But、um, Before before we jump into it, just just one quick note. I just want to make sure that、uh, that you know that at the beginning、uh, there is a bit of popping、um, from from、uh, Ling,、uh, but that issue does get resolved、um, very very quickly into the episode. So you know if 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 you hear that and it bothers you, just uh, just um, keep keep listening, and it will go away and、uh, it won't be a problem later. But with that, we give you Ling Kong, CTO of Dianrong. Well, Ling, thank you so much for taking the time to to join us today. Thank you very much for having me. So,、um, the first question that we like to ask、um, all of our guests is to、um, tell us your story.、Um, how did you come to join Dianrong, and what what were you doing before?、Um, so, I, I grew up in the states,、uh, studied in computer science and psychology.、Um, so, I was always a, a serial engineer. Dianrong is actually my fourth startup. Um, so about ten years ago, I was sent back to China by Microsoft to build Windows Azure, which is their cloud,、um, you know, service provider.、Uh, and eventually,、uh, leaving Microsoft because Microsoft isn't that localized to deal with the Chinese market, I went into essentially video games and mobile video games. And at that time, I actually had quite a bit of success with with the gaming industry. 
um, there was a, a time in 2013 that I started to realize that I wasn't doing much except for culture-wise, right, for the society with the companies that I was building, um, you know, by video games. Um, so at that time, I was looking for something that was more interesting or bigger. And I came across So, who was doing Learning Club in the United States, and he explained peer-to-peer learning to me. Um, and, and also back then, uh, I think China was devoid of a lot of financial services that made this economy or, or the lives of people better. So so after some serious consideration, I decided to join Dianrong. Uh, this was back in 2013. Dianrong as, as a company um, is, uh, is a P2P, so a peer-to-peer lending company. But, but you know... For for people maybe who don't really who haven't really heard about this before, I mean, how would you explain P two P lending to someone who really has never heard of it before? Okay, so so uh, to be more correct, I think we are more of a financial technology company. So we're we're known as a fintech company. Now, peer to peer lending is one of the primary services that we do provide with our technology. So so then let's go into peer to peer lending. Um, as we know, the world, um, the, the financial world, generally is based on lending. So essentially, any kind of financial products that we purchase via banks, via mutual funds, even you know when a company goes IPO, it all has to do with money, our money aggregated together and then lending to somewhere. Um, so so in the in the case of banks, you know, many times we put our money inside of a bank account and eventually the banks aggregate them together and lends it out to SMEs, to small and medium enterprises, to, you know, people who need homes, to, to many, many other services. But in between this entire process, there's a lot of institutions involved. You know, there's the bank institution, which has, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of branches, very, very heavy infrastructure. There's lawyers, there's Wall Street, there's all these people in the middle providing the professional services and taking a cut out of them. And this was before technology entered the financial realm. So today, uh, peer-to-peer lending platforms, what we do is um, we cut out literally all of the middlemen that had very, very heavy and expensive infrastructure and basically replace them with technology that grabs information um, and puts them very, very transparently on a website platform. And in this case, then people can come over here and actually then do private lending, just like Essentially, it is the same action as if they are lending to a bank or putting their money to a bank. But here they are participating in the actions directly, which means then without all the heavy infrastructure in the middle, there is much less, um, I would say, much less loss right, in terms of efficiency and much higher returns. But on the other, other, other hand, there's also a little bit more risk. Right, because people have to make judgments for themselves on who to lend to and why and whether this is something that they would like to do or not. Okay, so from a from a user perspective, could you describe the experience? Do I go into the platform and then uh, I literally pick a person? Am I like, oh, uh, Bob seems a nice guy, I'll lend him some money. How does it yeah. work from a user perspective? 
so so you you can do that. So so peer-to-peer lending platforms on in, in another way is called a private debt exchange, right? So it's kind of like how you go onto the secondary market, which you know, let's say the New York Stock Exchange. When you want to lend to a company, you simply pick out a stock quote, and you say, hey, you know, here's a company that I like. Um, let me look at their information, whatever that's publicly available, and then let me invest in the stock, right? A piece of that company. Um, peer-to-peer lending works almost the same way, right? So let me find a person I like. Maybe this is a single mother working outside of the Jiangsu province. And, um, you know, she is having some hardships, but I think his, her historical records are, are good enough that she will she will very soon turn around and actually pay for, for the loans that she's taking out. Or here is, uh, you know, a couple of newlyweds and they actually need a little bit additional money to do home improvement. They want their perfect home, um, and they're a little bit short, right? So why don't I also give them a little bit of money as well, All right? So what's interesting is that in the I would say peer 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 PDP lending model, right? In the very direct model, that's what you do, right? You take one customer, you basically give them a little bit of your money, and eventually, when enough people gives them the money that they want, it becomes a full loan, and that person takes the loan. And you and basically spends it towards whatever he or she needs needs it to be, and eventually after earning money back, then they would they would repay the loan. Now what Daron does is a little bit more sophisticated. Just like in I would say public stock markets, there are, uh, there there are funds associated with 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 many things, right? So for example, we have our S and P 500, where the top 500 stocks gets grouped together so that when people buy it. People buy an average, right? That represents a lot of the industries or the top 500 uh, firms in the world. Um, we can also do this with peer-to-peer lending, where we can then start grouping customers together. Here's all these, you know, young couples who are getting married. Here are all these people who need a car for their for their, you know, mom and pop business. Right? Here's all the institutions that needs this for a bridge loan. Right? And all of these things could be aggregated together via technology and then be presented to people um, as if it was a fund. And in this case, then people can actually buy in and and basically experience um, a more distributed um, way of lending out to people. And as you guys know, in finance, uh, more distribution of your money to many, many people means much lower risk and much, uh, or, or rather the, the risk becomes more macro um, economics uh, or, or macroeconomy driven rather than every single individual person and their their single um, you know credit based uh, scenarios what from what you were describing there's kind of there's two ways of um, as a as a as a lender or or as a lendee of actually receiving receiving this money um, so so basically like as as uh, someone who's um depositing money into uh Dianrong's system like there's two ways there's there's i can either choose to um i can choose specific people or specific projects or i can put it into kind of like a, a larger fund and get returns on that yeah so so essentially it works like this so so in general we don't call it a fund um, mainly because funds are regulated by the by the security exchange. So essentially, it is a large aggregation of loans, where then we help people to distribute their money equally into those loans. And how do you guys uh, insert? I mean, how do you extract value from this? What's your business model here? 
Um, so, so our, our, our business model is simply to then take a service fee. So, so this business model is actually very different from the banks, right? Where the banks are working on an arbitrage model, where um, essentially they are trying to take m- taking money at the lowest interest rate and then lending out the money at a higher interest rate and earning all that money in between, right? All the interest rate in between. For a platform like us, right, we simply just take a service fee. Right now, now the service fee is also a percentage service fee, but it really um, doesn't matter that much on how high the interest rate or how low the interest rate. We're more concerned about serving, uh, servicing more and more people, uh, as well as basically more and more institutions. Again, this model is very similar to how you know a lot of the, the companies on a public exchange work. Right, so generally they're working on a service fee model rather than on an arbitrage model. Mm, sure. Uh, what what what's the typical rate? So so um, it actually depends on the situation and on the product. Right, so so we have a term called risk-based pricing, which essentially we try to uh, you know basically recommend a rate that is equivalent to cover the risk associated with this this uh, this loan or this transaction. So depending on the person, it could actually be very, very different. So some people without a steady job may actually have a significantly higher rate than those that do have steady jobs. Right? So for example, we would have some loans, right? For, for personal loans, um, they can be actually even lower than bank rates, right? So we're talking about very, very low rates, um, um, maybe you know less than 15% APR um, rates and and these rates are actually you know significantly lower than if you were to borrow from a credit card or from from any other I would say short short duration banking system. Uh, now we do have some loans that are higher in interest rate mainly because um, maybe they're unsecured maybe they don't have anything collateralized in the back maybe we don't have a lot of information but the statistically if we loan out enough of these loans the right I would say return would come back to our investors so so we, we do this much more mathematically yeah that, that's it's super interesting because I mean it's it sounds like and it, I mean of course you know um, talking to the CTO of course you know we're gonna get a, a pretty good understanding of, of um, the technology behind it um, but I guess that it that, that kind of you know so how do you differentiate with your with your competitors? I mean, do you differentiate on technology, on service? Um, what where what 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 aspects? I think we we mainly differentiate on technology, and the technology that drives which services that we provide. So, for example, um, you know, in around uh, technology, uh, using technology to distribute somebody's money into millions of loans, this is actually pretty hard, right? Infrastructurally pretty hard. So some of our competitors, um, after we pushed out our product, try to copy us and maybe they're able to distribute somebody's money. Maybe let's say you have $1 and it goes to a thousand people and that's the max that they can do. But within their own, maybe $1 for us, right, can go into a million people. Now this means that you're dealing with sub-penny transactions you're dealing with interests that are based on the subpenny transactions which means they're they're even smaller you're dealing with accounting with with um, you know consolidation with all these kind of math right but what's interesting then also is that when you have a million people that you're loaning out your money to whether it's a dollar or if it's a million dollars um, in this case you actually have a pretty broad spectrum 
view of where the money is going to, who are they going to, which I would say provinces or which states, right, which cities, what kind of jobs, right? And then you would then even have more control over that. Maybe then you would like to tell Darren that, hey, look, right, um, I don't really like the traditional auto industry because I don't want to support oil. So um, can you help me invest my money into more electric autos, right? Or more, um, or my money towards helping people who are creating startups, right? From let's say my my uh, alma mater, right? And all of these choices, based on based on what people start to see and view, then as an experience is given back to the user so that people can actually have control over the money. Of, of their own money and, and where they go to. Right? This is actually a very powerful powerful concept. Most people in the world um, dealing with any kind of banking system don't really have a choice of where their money is going to, except on the stock market where, where they directly give it to the company. right? Um, mm. But but here in peer-to-peer lending, we can say that, hey, look, right, if you want to help people, right? Maybe, maybe you care about an interest rate, so you're not doing this for free, but you also want to pipe your money towards people who are in hardship and need. And, you know, their interest rate may be a little higher, but their risk is also higher, but you're still going to get a return. And if it is your choice to do so, then you would actually be much more, I would say, um, convinced into helping them as well as much more understanding of hardship situations if it were to occur in these people's lives. Hmm. So you're adding sort of elements of altruism and charity uh, into it's, this. It's, it's, yeah, so, so it's much more about the elements of choice, right? So a lot of people may not even have altruism or, or charity associated with their investment decisions. Maybe some of them are, simply want to say, hey, I want the highest returns. But here through the loans and through the packaging of the loans, as well as educating the users who these people are in the back, um, a lot of people can make then smarter decisions on why and how uh, you know, their money goes to certain people and what are, what are the risks associated with it, right? Now, a lot of these risks then are tied to macroeconomic trends. So maybe today, you know, you're loaning out to young people because young people need uh, cash more desperately, right? Recently, maybe the iPhone came out and they kind of want to buy an iPhone, but, you know, that, that don't make enough money for it. Um, but we need to realize that, okay, this, this um, action, right, depending on certain situations may also be risky. And it is up to the people to choose at which time that they would actually invest and why and how. Right? Again, this is very much like the stock market. How many people actually use the enroll? Uh, what, what, okay. What's the growth rate of your of your users and what's the breakdown uh, bet- between uh, you know China and, and and globally? Okay, so um, so so today, right? So so number one, I, I think uh, Daron has about a three hundred percent CAGR. Um, year-over-year growth up until this year. This year has been a little slower due to regulation and so forth. So in general, we have a lot of investing customers. So we have about, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, don't quote me on this, right? The, the pure numbers are coming from marketing, right? But um, we, we have about 4 million registered customers. So out of these, about a million who actively invest um, on a monthly cycle, right, on on different things. Now, um, what's interesting is that we have more than 10 million registered customers. So the the rest, the other ones are actually borrowers. Today, uh, because because of online loans, because of the smaller amounts of loans that we have towards uh, towards different people's situations in need, we are actually registering probably about a million customers a month. 
and uh, and and all of them are actually coming online. Actually, the, the I would say all, but the majority of them are coming from online, and these customers then get serviced by by their own as well. Right, so so in general, this is our current growth and customer base. We do about um, you know, for example, last month we did about three billion. Um, in terms of loans, right? So three billion RMB uh, in in newly originated transactions and loans. You're you're not international because I was I was did in my research yesterday. I saw you guys had the fully English website. It seems like we you're, do. <laughs> we do. Now, we so. we are international, but the majority of the loan market that we service is today still in China. Today we actually don't have a second market. Um, outside of China, even though this may become a reality very soon. Uh, unfortunately, I cannot talk about which market and how and why we're doing this. Um, there are international offices that we have. For for example, today we have a Hong Kong office. Right? Um, the Hong Kong office is more focused on wealth management opportunities um, and, and other things. Right? So, so again, um, we, we do different things right now, uh, but the majority of the work that we do today is still in China. And that's actually the biggest, uh, I would say, battleground or the biggest market that we are focusing on. Sure. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Yes. Now, now this doesn't um, doesn't include the fintech services that we provide, right? If you look at the systems that we have underneath, right, electronic wallets is, is actually not something that everybody can build, right? Especially dealing with large scalable transactions associated with it. Um, now, other things like a lending platform, right, a marketplace platform. Um, the, the technologies behind servicing loans, right, big data risk, all these things. Um, you know, today uh, are technology driven, right? And technology is interesting is that it's all math and numbers based. And and the way we build things is very localizable and internationalizable. So today what we see is their own technology being a driving force to move, to push their own, I would say services outside of China. But a lot of this time, right, it is actually, um, you know, collaborating with a partner or with an investor and and landing you know our technology into their user user scenarios so so those kind of projects are actually very international and we have quite a few of them going on hmm. it, it, I find it super fascinating because what you're describing here is you know quite advanced financial products um, and you know having lived in China a long time uh, both myself and John we've seen you know, Previously, if we if we look back, I don't know five ten years, the financial options open to most Chinese people were quite limited, and and now there's been an explosion of of uh, and, and and sort of almost leapfrogged into offering quite advanced, almost the world's most advanced financial products. Um, are, are many of them are here now in China. Um, what you've just described is a good example. You know, what, what, what kind of uh, uptake are you seeing from, from Chinese citizens here? What, how do you think financial awareness of all these like new products um, is growing in the market? Because you must have to do a lot of education, I would guess, for you know, educating uh, users about, um, about you know, how, to, how to manage their money and how to use these services. Yes. So what's interesting is that, number one, I, I think Chinese users are very technology savvy. Right. This is a group of people that, um, you know, almost, um, you know, 
religiously worship technology, right? Mm. In a way where uh, you know everybody adopts technology very easily and very quickly. Again, this is the the biggest mobile market in the world already. Um, what, what the other interesting part is that um, banks have not been keeping up, right? So so China is a regular, uh, you know, a, a relatively young economy. Right, where probably 30, 40 years ago it started, uh, you know, basically introducing capitalism. And at the times that the banks were making choices, they were following very, very safe and older standards sold to them by Microsoft, McKinsey, and the likes. All right, so we're talking about a banking infrastructure that's even more archaic than the U.S. banking infrastructure. So, mm-hmm. and then in, in between this time, right, there was a lot of state-owned enterprises, right, we call them SOEs, a lot of companies, a lot of relationships, right, uh, again, Ch- China is more relationship-driven company. So, a lot of these financial decisions by the banks are driven by relationships and by guarantees by the government, which means that they, they're also still risk-averse, but they don't really go into um, the faster-growing sectors of the economy. Right, that leaves a whole a huge gap right into servicing the rest of the economy right so so this gap is on the loan side as well as on the wealth management side so so essentially on, on the wealth wealth management side it's the same thing right so uh, number one Chinese people actually like to spend uh, put their money in the banks right so there was always a banking kind of uh, mode right, where everybody just stores their money in the banks but not everybody actually bought any kind of wealth management products right so um, so a lot of times when the banks sold wealth managed products they actually don't guarantee returns as they're supposed to but uh, you, you know so so essentially in this case right um, many people just simply bought the most conservative part of the wealth management. It used to be that you had to lock, lock your money up for, let's say, three months, maybe up to a year, right? And you get yield. It's very similar to the United States, right? Anywhere between, you know, 2%, 3%, 4%. But for 4% is actually still already high. But what's interesting is there is no financial products, let's say, five years ago that dealt with people who wanted to earn more than that except for the stock market. Now, the Chinese stock market has been historically very volatile. All right, so there's only a small segment of the population that dealt with, with the stock market. Um, for anybody who wanted to earn money between 4% to, let's say, 15%, right? Um, you know, there, there's not that many great choices, right? Maybe it is available for you if you want to go into private equity, but that means you need at least a million RMB or above in order to to follow the regulations and actually join in private uh, private uh, equity. All right, so in between this, right, there there was a shadow banking world, where in China, a lot of people used to do banking-related activities, very much like peer-to-peer lending, but um, much more unsophisticatedly, right? There's small loan companies, there's factoring companies, there's all these legally recognized companies who are pulling people's money together in some ways and then lending them out to people right, via their own relationships and methods of collection and, and risk, right? And today with peer-to-peer lending, uh, what happened was all of these things started to become more transparent, more technology-driven, and and and. Essentially, the government likes that as well, right? The government calls that bring sunshine to the shadow banking world, or when all the institutions participating in these transactions that the banks actually are not participating in and that the economy needs, right, starts 
becoming technology driven, all this information then feeds back to the government as well. And and the government has actually a much clearer picture of how the China economy is is growing and developing. So so in this in this process, then people actually start to get new products, right? And these new products are very different than their old, I would say, archaic uh, bank, you know, investment-related products, as well as these new pro- financial services are different from what they can borrow at the bank as well. Yeah, and I was going to ask actually about um, about the government and kind of how how they view uh, peer to peer lending because um, like when I first heard about peer to peer lending, and again, like I mean, your your company's not all peer to peer lending, but um, um, when I first heard about P two P lending, I think my first reaction was, you know, okay, this is just a place that's rife for for fraudsters, or, you know, where people can come in. Um, and take advantage because you know Chinese people they're as you said um, they're looking for more opportunities to to put their money to work um, and and in at least you know uh, when peer to peer lending really got started there weren't that many options um, but from what you're saying the government is actually fairly supportive of of peer to peer lending and and what you guys are doing Yes. So what's interesting is that with China in any industry, right, as soon as it comes up, uh, number one, China sort of manages the different industries, right, in a in a sort of watch, and and then regulate kind of mode, right, where they they kind of step aside and watch what's happening, and then eventually follow up with regulations once the risk starts appearing. So all these fraudsters that actually appeared out of China, actually there were there were a few that was quite famous, right? Um, they all came about when when this industry is very young, and there's unregulated ways of doing things, and some people like us, right, are driven by technology and transparency and providing services. There's other people who are simply marketing and and basically pulling money together and figuring out ways how to how to scam people. Right? So today, I, I think that the Chinese government. Um, so so the number one, I I think the Chinese government is in theory very supportive of this industry. Right. This is simply because of the inability for the for the banks in China today to participate in small ticket lending. Right. Um, you know, they they're not focused in such areas where the the economy today is actually in desperate need of these things. And these 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 small ticket lending is actually what contributing to the growth of the China GDP today. Right. Um, so so they realize that there is a group of people that need this this uh, this money, and there has to be a good way to to let them borrow and and let them lend to. Um, they also realize that China's economy, 40% of it, the, the, the lending associated with this, is dealt with shadow banking. And, and this was before peer-to-peer came about, right? So, which means there was 40% of the money being lent out in the system that the government does not have transparency to. So for a transparency reason and a system integration reason, they would love to see more technology getting into those sectors. And essentially with the existence of peer-to-peer lending and fintech, a lot of these companies are being push to adopt these methods, right? If not, then they, they cannot survive and now compete um, the, in, in the current environment. Um, the third thing is that then they are actually putting regulations, right? What are the risky behaviors? What can you do? What can you not do? And these regulations actually have come out and they've come out very strictly to all of the participants in this industry. They even crossed over to a lot of the shadow banking industry, uh, uh, shadow banking uh, entities that, that we already know. 
and via these regulations, uh, the government is actually issue, issuing ICPs, which, which is an internet servicing license, right? And within these licenses, operating licenses, they're essentially making this business legal. Right. But within here, then there's a lot of um, a lot of controls associated with it. For example, our, our industry today needs to be custodianized by a bank, which means not only are we providing the technology information on top of that, we're also syncing this up with the bank and with the government, which means that every single number and, and transaction and people that we authenticate is, is documented, is booked, is cross-validated so that we make sure that all these transactions are real. So, so I, I, in my opinion, I, I think the existence of fraud in this industry in today, as well as the near future, is going to be become harder and harder and harder. Now, of course, there's always going to be fraud on the borrower side, right? Where somebody comes in and say, um, you know, here's my information, but all of the, this information is fake. And how are you going to, you know, you know, give me money associated with it? This is this is kind of like, you know, identity theft in the United States. Um, or, you know, basically people just straight out lying and disappearing with their money. And this had to do with China used to not having a credit system or at least a well-working credit system. And a lot of people thought that, you know, they can just scam money for once and just leave and be gone with it. It also existed where money used to be worth a lot more in China. Right. So there, there, there was a lot more incentive for you to borrow 10,000 RMB and then run, run back to your farm and never come back. Right. Today, it's actually not so as well. I, I personally think the post 80s, 90s generation, especially the 2000 generation, they've grown up with the idea that, you know, credit is worth something and they actually see it worth something. So today, um, for example, your credit record is mapped to Alipay, is mapped mm -hmm. to a lot of Internet companies, which means, you know, if you have a bad credit record, maybe your trip to your, you know, your future trip to Singapore, to Japan would be um, would be much harder. Right. Because people actually look this this up. Right? As you know, in Alipay with Jima, right, um, a lot of these these conveniences come with credit. Let's say you're you're riding one of these mobile bikes or bike sharing um, you know uh, bicycles if you actually have good credit you don't have to you don't have to put in deposit there's many hotels today that you don't actually have to put out a deposit because you have good credit and you can then just just spend as as you leave right so all of these conveniences because China is new to credit has started to appear especially with internet companies right with the services and values that we drive um, you know on our applications as well as on people's day-to-day -day lives and so so I personally think the next generation cares much more about their credit. So they're not going to, for a little bit of money, just ruin their credit for their lives. So, so this is a, a very interesting trend that I saw only in the past five years. It actually, it probably started occurring more so in 2014, 2015. But over the past two years, the, the market, especially the, the technology adopted market, um, has actually started to grow, grow into these ideas and into respecting it respecting credit and, and what it means to their lives. Um, there are also a bunch of scamsters in China. Right? A, a lot of these scamsters are essentially middlemen who gathers people who actually don't really know anything um, and they scam for them um, and take a cut in the middle, right? 
what's interesting about these, um, they, they work like identity theft agencies, but in the United States, in my opinion, identity theft people are generally hackers, right? They're, they're located somewhere in the world and they're hacking the system. In China, these, I would say middle people, middleman, right? They're usually more manual. All right, they're they're very low technology focused. All right, so they sit together, they call, they they scam, they gather information, they even you know build up bank bank account records and all these things. But what's interesting about that is that with technology, you can actually circumvent um, their ways of operation. Right, you can actually identify who they are because they're all coming from the same subnet, same location. They're pinging your application. Uh, you know, the bank records don't really align to let's say e-commerce shopping records. So if somebody has this income, then they should technically be buying X amount of things on Taobao at this price range, right? And any deviance from that may be a question mark, right? Are they actually calling frequently and all these things? Now, so a lot of this information with pub with with um, proper authentication by the user is actually given to us, right, as fintech companies. And then we, we look for, for, for issues, right? We, we look for um, why do they correlate and, or why do they not correlate? And here there's a lot of, I would say, deep learning, machine learning associated with this, right? graphical ana analysis and so forth. Right? So all of these things um, contribute to the development of China FinTech today. Um, so it's much harder and harder to scam you know, FinTech companies like us. And or then if all of or if the majority of your borrowers are real, and they and, and the only reason why they're not paying back is because they're facing financial hardships. And these you can actually trend with, you know, macro economy kind of trends, right? Based on all these micro things that you micro micro bits of information that you collect, then you can actually systematically um, trend for the future, use mathematics to calculate what is worthwhile, right, for the platform or for the investors on the platform to invest into. Yeah, I, I think it's a, you made several really interesting points there. Um, certainly, in on, on the Chinese internet, I, I completely agree. It's with regard to, you know, doing anything online these days, there's a lot of, it's increasingly everywhere. You have to do real name verification. Uh, we've seen this, I was just the other day, I tried to upload a video to Tencent Video and I, I need to, I need to do real name verification even even to upload a video these days. So in China, it's I think online activity is uh, is much more trackable. It's much more linked to people's uh, ID card. You know, it's a homogenous market with a unified ID card system, which makes makes this thing easier as well for 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 all these companies to integrate a unified system into terms of tracking people. Uh, and of course, the government, uh, you know, requires it in many areas as well. Um, so that what you said about, you know, reducing fraud and, and, and makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I think that's quite a big difference between China and other markets in terms of in terms of like the amount of um, the requirements there to, to is very, very common that you need to verify your ID. And also, we were talking on previous episodes, you know, facial recognition technology coming in as well. So um, with, with, with all of these technologies evolving now, it seems to be that it's going to be easier and easier to track people over time. Which yes, um, you, you know, you know, to be honest, right. So so China is a country that adopts technology extremely quickly. So mm, if I remember yeah. correctly, facial recognition was only a technology that became popular in 2015. 
So by 2017 today, I can go into a supermarket. There's actually a humanless supermarket today or uh, via camera recognition technology, right? So this is deep learning based on items, right? On shelves, right? Like let's say at a 7-Eleven, right? They don't call it 7-Eleven Family Mart. Um, you can grab something. You can actually go to the door and basically with facial recognition pay, right? Um, you know, it's linked up to Alipay or, or Tempay in the back, right? It could be, you know, scanning a QR code, but then once you're, you're, you're identifying register, you can actually pay with your face. Um, for example, I just uh, came back from Dalian where I checked into a hotel and they had me facial recognize um, right at the hotel, right? It's, it's a very nice device, right? It looks like an iPad. Uh, but what's interesting is after I facial recognize in the hotel, then afterwards, every time I go to the hotel, um, you know, the doors open automatically, right? The, the different checks are, are done. And what's what, what else is interesting is that my names gets correlated by all these staffs, right? So these staffs know actually I'm a customer staying there. And, and I think the system actually alerts them that I'm coming onto the premises and they should welcome me right, with my real name. Right, so, so all of these technology-driven services is super interesting. And, and we see it across the spectrum in all these places. Or, or I've heard recently that um, you know there's a police department in China, in, in Shanghai, that started using facial recognition as at bus centers. And in a single month, they caught four fugitives right, on, on their top list. Right, simply because you know these these things are actually starting to recognize everyone, and, and in China there's there's um, a, a high amount of of I would say high high definition cameras installed everywhere. Uh, what's interesting about this for the lending environment is also these infrastructures um, may be available for different companies. For example, for companies like us, when we negotiate with the right entities and right right I would say. Right, governmental entities were able to tap into some of these resources to be able to locate fraudsters, to be able to locate people who are who are not paying back, and figure out how can we actually collect on on behalf of the company and on behalf of the lenders. What 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 other interesting thing about this is that um, you know our entire you know our online loan process is actually very short, right? So if somebody's uh, tech savvy, maybe they can finish an entire loan system, a loan application by um, in, in about two minutes. And some of the key aspects of this is facial recognition, where not only do you do real name verification or ID card, but we also match, you know, what's stored in the government database, right, on your ID to your face to make sure that you are really that person. And then after that, then ask for a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, authentications, right? Basically, uh, your agree, uh, your agreement for us to look at your public data, uh, your internet data, a lot of these other data for us to cross correlate and figure out how good of a, of a lender or borrower you are. I mean, you referenced yourself. You said the state-owned banks, you know, they're not techno technologically driven, um, but they are, you know, huge and very important organizations. You know, how, how are they looking at this technological development? I mean, recently, for example, we saw, you know, China Unicom, they got invested by, by, by um, from the private sector. And that yes. seems to be like a very, very big deal in my mind of like, um, for the first time, you know, in technology companies like Tencent investing in, in, a, in a state owned enterprise. Is it possible we could see um, something similar here? You know, just that's pure speculation, obviously, but like, what, what, what do you it, think? It, it, it may be so. Um, so. So what's interesting is that I see a lot of banks going IPO. Um, and many of these banks are going IPO, let's say, in 
um, you know, in Hong Kong, right? They're, they're not main, they're, they're not even going IPO inside the a, a uh, uh, inside the, the the China exchanges, right? So within this process, a lot of I think private sectors have already been been getting into these banks, right? So so there's at least an infusion of new capital and a mix of ideas happening already. Uh, what's interesting is that um, um, I would say banks are actually um, capturing or dealing with internet companies as well, right? So many of them are actually buying small teams, right, from uh, from the internet side, and then incorporating them as part of the bank or part of the loosely collaborated entity outside the bank. Maybe they will incorporate a small loans company, uh, but it's majorly funded by the bank uh, to start experimenting in, in, in fintech and in peer-to-peer lending and so forth. So, so we, we, see, we see, number one, we, we see banks being threatened right, by the rise of internet companies, especially, I think Yuobao was, was a, a big reminder for them on how potentially the world can become. Right, so so everybody is moving towards a direction. You know, they're coming from bottoms up, right? From from a from a from a financial uh, directive, moving towards a technology kind of driven world. And then there's a lot of tech companies um, that are coming from a technology driven world and moving into the financial world. So mm-hmm. I, I personally think in a few years, right. Uh, there will be people who mingle in between, right? Or, or the services will no longer be that easily identified being a tech service or a banking-related service. What's interesting is that, in general, the tech-related services, they have a much more, um, more keen note onto customer experience, right? Yeah. So, in general, they win on more on what is the better experience side. Now the banking world, right? They have more trust associated with how people's money are being stored. So, so we see uh, actually even an obvious age divide in who uses the the internet technologies and who uses actually the banking technologies. But, I, but I think as the younger generation grows older, right? The people who are majority using Alipay today are post 80s. Uh, but in 10 years, right? They're they're going to be 40, 50 years old. Right. So which in that case, then they are prime banking customers. And by then, if banking doesn't have the right technologies for these people to use, then they may lose them forever. Right. So so here there's a lot of urgency and a lot of, um, I would say, um, you know, I, I personally think the banks feel it much more than the, the banks in the United States or in, in Europe. Sure, but it must it, it's only a matter of time, right? It's coming. It's, this is a something that will be hitting everyone globally eventually we would yes we would yes. and 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 the, there's actually new private banks already right so so again china um there's three new private banks right so so if we're talking about the alibaba wangshang Yinhang, right so that's one of the private banks they have the tenpei uh weizhong Yinhang, right so so the the we bank um and we have a third bank uh called uh huaxia Right, so these three banks are actually all private. Right, so all the other banks are all government related in some way. Right, so so when when we see the existence of private banks, 
then we we see what happens in the future, right? So is there going to be a blend? Is there going to be healthy competition? And and but but not everybody is able to get these banking licenses. Right? It's actually very extremely extremely hard to get these licenses. And once you're under these licenses, you're subject to also banking rules, right? So banking rules are actually not as flexible as the fintech rules, right? The banking rules are still limited to Basel, limited to all these, uh, I would say, financial rules developed over the ages. And some of this would also limit um, the the type of services that they provide as well. Yeah, so it's my bank, uh, my bank, we bank, and Fasia mm -hmm. is the third one. Um, yes, yes. Okay. But what, who's, who's what's interesting bank? is that I I I personally think this um, this trend is going to happen. But what what else may be interesting is that. Um, I personally think the rise of blockchain may change all of the current states, right? So, so it, it used to be that people thought fintech is going to be a reshuffling of all the cars on the market, uh, where, where then some banks will actually be reduced to infrastructural set of services, and some banks will actually stand stand in the customer set of faces along with internet companies. Um, but what, what's what's more interesting is that with China's active adoption of blockchain, as well as the government, you know, huge interest in how blockchain works and how blockchain is being pushed out to the society. Um, there may be actually a different shift as well, as we know, blockchain could essentially facilitate the automation of business um, as well as the business related transactions. So today, the reason why uh, we have Alipay uh, versus the bank is because the banking transactions and services don't service us in the same convenient needs as, as somebody like Alipay. But in the future, when these all disappear and become automatable, maybe everything becomes an infrastructure, which in that case then, then um, maybe there's a, a, a re-rise of, of banking and banking-related technologies. You mentioned before about you know using data to track purchase history uh, and previous you know um, previous behavior on 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 the on the phone or, or wherever. Like there's been a lot of talk about how in China people are less you know concerned about their privacy, concerned about the, their data. Um, how would you describe that you know that environment of in China about about um, about people's data uh, compared to, you know, more mature, well, well, I, I don't think we can say more mature markets, anymore, <laughs> but compared to, you know, uh, the US and, and Europe, for example. So, so I, I think in general, the public um, does care a little bit less about where their data is going to. Um, I, I think that the public is more uh, more realistic, right? So, so the China public, if they realize they can get something for their data, they're willing to share their data. But if they realize that, hey, they're they're being you know robbed of their data, then in that case, uh, they're not. But I, I, I will I will tend to argue that in the United States, it's almost the same thing, except there's some very vocal people who don't like to share their data at all and they like to publicize about it. So, so, so for example, in, in the United States, right, technically, when you're using Gmail for free, Google is looking at all your email data, <laughs> you know, parsing it, yeah. making sense out of it, and then throwing advertisement against it. Now, of course, they, they promise that, they promise you that people are actually not looking at, um, you know, not, there's no real people looking at this, right? This is just machines and providing you a service. Um, if you look at the financial market in the United States when you're applying for the loans, you are actually giving a significant amount of data. 
right, when you're applying for health insurance, you're also giving us some significant amount of data. So I think people understand that, hey, look, if I want something, maybe it's a loan, maybe it's cheaper interest rate on a loan, then I need to give up some of my data associated with this, right? Now, people are very upset, let's say in the United States, uh, if Comcast started selling their data, right? Because they, they, they don't see a way where, you know, their browsing behavior or their TV watching behavior comes back to them. Um, in China, I, I would assume it's the same thing, right? If, you know, a telecom started selling their data, uh, a lot of Chinese customers may not be that happy associated with it as well. So today, I, I think, um, especially within the recent year, one year, there has been a lot of government regulations associated with data, how data could be translated to and sold and so forth. So, so there's uh, actually a much better tightening on how data is being transported and being taken. But I think for the average consumer, as long as you provide them a good service and you let them understand that, hey, look, we need your data to give you a better service. Uh, most of them are, are readily available to do so. And if they're not, right, a company like us, we don't actually collect their data. Let's say if somebody applies a loan on our platform and they're unwilling to give us their Alipay data, um, you know, in, in, in this, there's actually a whole process of authentication associated with us and Alipay and them, right? But let's say they, they don't want to, they can actually skip this process, right? But the, the side effect of skipping this process means that their interest rate will be actually a lot higher. Well, not a lot higher, but, but a bit higher than their, their if they were to participate, simply because they're unwilling, which means that, you know, we don't know whether they're unwilling because of privacy or they're unwilling because they're a fraudster and, and, and they, don't, they don't really have a correlated uh, set of data. And if it's the latter, then we need to calculate all the associated risk with that, within that and statistically map them into a higher interest rate category so that um, you know everybody then statistically pays for the fraudsters right, who actually fraud the system. Right? So here then people have a choice, right? They can choose high interest rate or trading in their data for something. Now, uh, of course, we, we, we offer the same thing. So, for example, for, for things on Alipay, um, uh, you know, we, we, uh, th there's not really people looking at what people are really buying, you know, are these because uh, a lot of things that people buy online are sensitive, right? But we're, we're more looking at, okay, what are they buying and are they, you know, basically the categories of the things they're buying, are they matching to average expenditures in this category? Now, are they above average or below average, right? Maybe they're 50% above average, which means they're actually a bigger spender, right? Um, based on their salary, right? This actually calculates differently to their income and debt ratio and will most likely affect on how much money we loan them. Right, so, so there's a lot of these calculations that exist. Right? Maybe there are some categorical identifications. Maybe this person says they're married, but in China, it's very hard to figure out whether they're married or not. But it's a little easier to figure out whether they're buying you know, kid stuff on the internet. And you know, if they're buying kid stuff on the internet and there's more than one device on the subnet, people accessing our, our servers and so forth, there's a correlated set of methods for you to give heuristics on whether, you know, they're married and being married or not um, is a factor of stability, which then would also, also um, you know, change interest rate in, in a certain way. Um, again, a, a lot of these methods are used to cross-correlate and identify 
um, basically to know more about the customer. If they're unwilling to provide this information, maybe they simply get a higher interest rate or maybe you know, at, at a point where we, we cannot tell anything, then we would rather not loan this money to this customer and rather give it to somebody else. Sorry, but but looking looking at looking at retail banking, you know, which is uh, in some ways kind of what what you guys are doing. Um, I mean, I'm curious. So, what how do how do you describe the difference between what you do and what someone like like Alipay does with Yuabao or with Tencent or Tencent does with like Lin Tiantong and things like that? Yeah, so so they're actually not doing retail lending. So 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 number one, actually, the the majority of our Darren loans. Um, they may actually go into businesses. What's interesting about China businesses is that many people in China borrow on behalf of their own credit for their business. So, for example, they need 50,000 RMB for the tail end of a car installment or a car payment. Uh, they may actually borrow personally in order to actually sub-factor into their, their personal businesses. So, so uh, again, um, I think risk associated with person as well as with company is evaluated together in order to figure out what is the size and risk associated with the loans that we give. But but to, to go on to your question, I think Alipay, Tempay, they're actually not really doing lending. Right. So if you look at something like Yuobo, it's actually a money market fund. Right. So that is really a fund based on uh, you know, basically based on money markets, right? Based on how world's currencies are are changing and exchanging on top of that, right? The risk associated with the money market fund is significantly lower than any risk associated with just pure lending. Now, of course, Alipay doesn't do 100% money money market fund. Um, you know, their, their fund is big enough that they could take a portion, right? Maybe a very small percentage, uh, which, which is already a lot of money, right? It's billions of dollars. Um, and they will then lend it to large secure institutions that have backing, right? Maybe they'll give it to China Oil. Maybe they will give it to some other companies, right, that need uh, basically lower interest rates. But, but this interest rate will then factor into the money market fund to make up for, for you about blender rate. In general, this blender rate is much lower than lending per se. Right, so, so again, they're not participating in direct lending, but the experience to the end investing uh, investing customer is slightly similar, right? Because they're putting their money, maybe they're putting one RMB or even less, one penny, and they are getting interest rate accrued on top of that. And eventually, when they want to exit, they basically change or they basically sell their portion to somebody else who's coming in, or you know, they they basically give it back to the money market fund, and there's there's a way to to um, to, to basically consolidate all, all of this right, and then to do gotcha in the middle. All right, so in this way, right, it's actually a different financial product, even though the end customer experience is similar. Now, what's different about Danrong versus Alipay is that number one, the interest rate is higher because we are lending to people. Right? And with people with companies, right, the interest rate is generally higher than any money market fund. Right? Um, the, the second thing is choice, right? So people then also have a choice on where they're lending to, who they're lending to, which part of China, which sector of people, and which industries if they choose to customize. And they, they, they also get more transparency. Right? So for example, if I were to put money in Alipay, I don't really see where it goes, right? You know, there's no interface, nobody that tells me, okay, I bought this, right? And this is what happened underneath financially. And here's the small portion that went into China oil. 
I, um, you know, but but in their own, I see exactly where my money goes into, down to the very very last uh, fraction of a penny, to different people. So I can actually look at my portfolio, even though it maybe con constitutes millions of of loans. I I could pick out, you know, the ones from from Dalian, the ones from Chengdu, and I can say, hey, look, right, well, you know, why are why are there people borrowing in Chengdu? What what are they borrowing? Um, and and what does this data mean? And here, you know, if you actually play on the numbers and the attributes that we display. Now, of course, internally we have much more attributes. We even get a mi micro sense of how Chengdu as a city is developing because when people are borrowing against to a certain needs, then that means the city is actually thriving, it's actually growing, it's actually developing in certain certain ways. Uh, you know, is it is it you know are there more restaurants that are borrowing lately? Uh, that actually may not be bad. Right? It, may, it may not be that restaurants are failing and they need to borrow money. It may be that restaurants are expanding and they want more money right, to, to deal with the incoming set of population that is coming in from Beijing and Shanghai and, and other cities. So what's, what's, that, that, that's actually the part that's really interesting. All right, so so at the end of the day, right, the end customer, if they're lazy, they get a similar experience to Alipay and Yubo, except the interest rates are higher. Um, but if they want to learn about what's happening underneath uh, for a company like us, right, they can actually get down to very, very small details and to understand and to uh, to realize that, hey, you know, this is how uh, most financial systems work. And here's the logic behind it. Right? And let me then use these ideas and figure out figure out what what does it mean to put my money into a mutual fund to in a private equity in in other scenarios. That that's really super super interesting actually. Um, it just begs the question: uh, you've you've got all this data of, of all these users across China. You know, are overall just broadly speaking, are, are parts of China more financially savvy than others? You know, is there are oh. you seeing patterns there? <laughs> In terms of, like, uh, yes, yes. you would expect Shanghai and, and tier one cities to be more financially savvy. Yes. But are, are there any interesting findings that you're uh, that you unexpected? Yes. Yes. So, so, so I, uh, what's interesting is that if you look at my WeChat moments, um, you guys could probably take this uh, and post it somewhere on your podcast. Um, we just did a research recently um, based on Di Caijing, which is a media company, um, a, a data media company in China. Uh, and Alipay expenditure records, or they have collaboration associated with Alipay data, and then they mapped uh, mapped this against their own data. So there's uh, a very interesting infographs about which cities are more financial savvy. Generally, it is the first tier cities. So we're talking about Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Guangdong, right? And and these these uh, these cities have also different behaviors. For example, in Shanghai, women invest much more than men. I, and what are the age profile and customer profile and so forth? Um, you know, different age groups borrowing money and having actually, um, I would say, a different attitudes towards borrowing money. Right? Um, are they borrowing money for quick expenditures by mainly basically grabbing opportunity costs and then trading that with interest? Or are they borrowing money because it's for long term? business needs and so forth. So all of this data we do have and we strip out all the personal identifiable information and then we map it against what's happening in China and in this industry and even in in state or city level and, and we look right and and this is actually part of our job too right so we need to trend 
what is happening to them to the economy to make sure that we give the the associated returns back right to our lenders and we actually give the right interest rates um, basically the lowest interest rates possible right to the right borrowers so 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 all this information is used for us to simulate and trend against the future so so um, yeah feel, feel Feel free to look at my WeChat moments. I just posted it yesterday, and you're going to get a bunch of infographs. I, I think most of it is in Chinese, so maybe you guys will have to find somebody to translate it for you. But uh, but in general, this is very, very interesting information. Sure, maybe we'll put a link to the, in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But um, but Ling, so so before, you know, earlier in the episode, um, in our conversation, you mentioned that um, Dian Rong... Um, does other things besides uh, P2P lending. So, so tell us about the other parts of your business that's not um, about uh, lending money or, or doing P2P lending. So, so in, in general, we, we uh, put peer-to-peer lending so as, as the platform that we have. Right. So this platform is essentially on the bottom, providing electronic wallets, right? providing financial services to people, and then people can invest, see what they invest into. Right? So this is much more geared towards a wealth management point of view. Now, a lot of our investments go towards actually acquiring customers who are who are our borrowers, right? So again, again, this is associated with peer-to-peer lending, but it's no longer just peer-to-peer lending, right? It's pure lending because in this way, right? So, so a lot of this customer may be actually given to banks. They may be actually given to small loans companies and so forth, right? And we, we actually even have our own, right? So, um, so, so in, in this case, right, there's a lot of, I would say, technology-driven services associated with this. It used to be that, um, you know, a lot of like actually in in the United States it's more like this right or there's a lot of people right for example insurance salesman right loan salesman they would go around they would find customers uh, people who are in need get them to fill out a piece of paper and then and then eventually have these documents give it to a risk department the risk department then will analyze all of this stuff and then eventually make a decision based on risk risk based pricing right so in 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 a fintech company we do this a bit differently. Right, so, so number one, why do we even need to send people to find other people who need loans, right? So we, we, why can't we do this on the internet? Right, so there's a lot of, uh, I would say, optimizations and projects built towards acquiring customers online. So what do you say to them, right? What are the flows? Um, how does the ad exchanges work and how do you bid towards them? Um, as you know, China is a mobile market, right? So in terms of when mobile applications d- display your applications, right, your, your ad- advertisement, right, you actually already know a lot about these customers already, right? You may need to, you may already know their general age profile. You may need to know some taggings, right? You don't know who, what they're reading, let's say on a news, news site, right? But maybe you already have some categorical tagging. Maybe this person reads entertainment, reads finance, and reads education, right? Um, and you, maybe you have some device IDs associated with, are they using Android or iOS device and so forth, right? So all of this information is is using technology to then do real-time bidding on, you know, what do you, uh, number one, on, on how much are you going to pay for letting this customer see your ad. And then number two, once you pay for this customer, you need to show them the right ad, right? Targeted towards what matches to them so that it converts better, right? So there's a ton of technology associated with just acquisition, right? Tagging, acquisition, um, and very, very smart, dynamic ways of bidding. And, and, and this goes into AI and machine learning as well. 
Right. So once that happens, right, we have a lot of these customers who go through maybe a light process on the Internet. Some of them actually, um, you know, when their amount is small enough, right, they, they have a lot of information quickly done right, or they have a lot of information on the Internet already. Right. They actually get a loan directly. Right. So this may actually be peopleless. Right. So we're talking about then, uh, you know, big data risk. Um, you know, systems that take all this data, crunches the numbers, figure out, you know, the, the, the fraud likelihood. So, so there's the anti-fraud systems and so forth um, that all together, right, then give a quick answer to these people that eventually will maybe, maybe ending up with a loan or, or with money in their bank account in less than 10 minutes, right? So, so we have some cases where a, a young guy goes on a date, right? But realizes that, uh, or, or maybe maybe goes goes on an activity with a group of friends and, and realizes that, hey, you know, he's short a little bit of cash, right? Because everybody's taking cash and not credit card for, for I don't know, to, to do AA payment. Right, so so then what he does is he goes to the bathroom, he quickly takes out his mobile, applies for a loan in less than two minutes, and actually gets the money in his bank account before he needs to pay for the bill and everything happily goes through. Right. But then there's there's a lot of customers who, uh, who who we need to analyze. Maybe they're borrowing for a restaurant and their 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 credit card transactions on their restaurant is not enough for us to identify who they are. Or maybe they're doing home improvement or, or basically larger sets of loans. And and these people then would you know, their location and their or, or the location of their company would then appear on a map. And we have our salespeople, they, they kind of, you know, run around with an application as well, kind of like Uber, right, or the, or the Uber drivers. And, and, you know, different spots will light up on the map and they say, okay, well, this is very close to me. Let me go and service these people. Let me, let me figure out who they are, how they are. And a lot of this work then is also done programmatically using, using applications and so forth. So, so actually, we're coming we're coming close to the end. But one of the things that I that I really do want to talk to you about is um, is blockchain. Um, you know, you and I have spoken about about this a little bit uh, previously. Um, so, um, so for for blockchain, what do you think is the most interesting? And, and what are some what are some use cases of blockchain for a company like like the Enroll? Um, so, so I, I I think more about blockchain in a more broad spectrum so so number one I, I i've been talking to actually a lot of people including the world's i would say foremost blockchain experts and what's 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 interesting for me is that a lot of them think still in terms of bitcoin and digital currencies All right so uh, a lot of people are very adamant about blockchain being decentralized um, in my opinion that actually may not be necessary All right blockchain is a way to, to it's it's number one. We, we all know it is a distributed ledger, where information gets basically synchronized, right, uh, to everybody on the on the blockchain, right, on the node. What's 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 interesting about about this is that yes, it is a decentralized system way of working, but it doesn't mean that there cannot be a centralized point on the system that stands in the, as an authority, right. So for example. Um, you know, when all the chains gets, uh, basically when, when all the nodes gets the information, there could be a super node, right? Actually, we, we, we call that super node in, inside blockchain as well, right? Where the super node gets access to all the information. And in that case, if the super node is the government, then anything on top of a blockchain network could technically be uh, be regulated as well, right? So, so that solves the government 
regulation problem. And, and I, I think most of the Chinese government understand this, that, okay, so blockchain is, isn't just Bitcoin, right? It isn't something that we cannot control. It's rather something that we can control. Right, so, so moving past that, right, blockchain, if everybody has information at the time it is generated, number one, the, the likelihood for it to be fraudulent is very, very hard right? because a lot of information needs to get authenticated by a lot of different people. It is a way of collaboration that it used to be all driven manually. So, for example, let's let's take a, a transaction like buying a house, whether it's in the United States or in China, buying a house has financial transactions as well as the, the purchase transactions. Now, a lot of these things needs to be notarized. Right? So you go to an agency, you need to get this information stamped and confirm it's real with witnesses in case of court. Right? Uh, you know, when you go to go get a loan, you need your company statement saying, yes, this person works here and he or she owns this much money and, you know, they have a good KPI. Um, you know, you go to the bank and the bank will say, okay, this person has actually had a stable bank, I would say, uh, record for the past two years or past six months or whatever that they need. Right? So there's all these institutions that needs to collaborate together to provide the right set of information with the right set of signatures and chops in order to make a complicated transaction like this to happen. All right, so, so that is the current world as it is today. All right, now imagine if all of these institutions are all on the blockchain, right? which in that case, they can actually start to talk to each other more automatically. Let's say, let's, let's take some programmers and build a process right, for, um, for uh, you know, buying a house. Which in that case, you know, the, you know, as we initiate buying the house, part, right? Somebody evaluates the property who is on the blockchain, has this information already uh, evaluated. So they put it up and they stamp it, right? Digitally, right? And and the company goes and says, yeah, this person is a great person, right? We will just automatically pull up their HR records, you know, give you a, a, a summary of this person as well as how much money they're making. And they stamp it. Uh, the the bank stamps it right. The the in in this case there actually is almost no need for a notarization company, but there may be needing a lawyer firm firm, right? Maybe even the court system and so forth. So if everybody stamps this automatically on the blockchain, um, the entire infrastructure associated with the manualness of this transaction is all gone. Which means then potentially in the future, let's say 10 years from now, I could buy a house literally within minutes. Right? I look at the place. I say, this is cool. Right? Okay, let's get on this transaction network. And all these things gets associated. So I already know that this house does not have any debt associated with it. Here's the fair value. Right? I do have enough money. The bank is ready to give me a loan and everything. So why don't we now, I don't know, use our facial recognition or use our, our thumbprint and just nail the transaction here and now and everybody goes a separate way, but I just now have a house, right? So, so that is the ultimate end state of a blockchain. Now to get there is actually pretty hard, right? So, so I, I personally think blockchain is very similar to how 
I view the internet in back in the you know the mid 1990s, right? Where the internet first came out, and there's a lot of companies like American Online that built their own private network, right? Because it was very hard for uh, for machines to even connect to each other, right? Because there needs to be fiber infrastructure and all that stuff, right? Today, same way, right? Now all the fiber and infrastructure is there, but it's very hard for machines to connect to each other because everybody has to get onto a new connection network called blockchain. And there's a lot of protocols out there, but I, I think eventually they'll all merge or, or figure out how to talk to each other in, in similar ways. All right, so as different entities come onto the blockchain, then different business processes can then be automated. Right, let's take a simpler case. Right, take um, you know our collaboration with Foxconn kind of case. Right, or within the Foxconn network, right, they purchase things. Right, they in in order to eventually build for Apple. Right, now their supply chain is actually extremely deep. Right, they have eight, nine, sometimes even ten layers deep, where um, it's very hard to trace what money goes to whom, what what items goes into whom, and so forth. So once um, we actually convinced to put Foxconn on this blockchain. That means actually every everybody who is providing or who is trying to sell something to Foxconn wants to also get onto this uh, on, onto this blockchain, which then means that the financial transactions on top of that would be automated. The legal documents associated with all the business transactions can then be built in as smart contracts, and then the items that are shipped can be then tra uh, tra uh, tracked via IoT as they are already today. Right, and different things are recorded differently, and you can see the massive amounts of business, um, I would say, automation associated with this, and then also the massive amount of information that leads to financial services that are available on such a network. And why, why Foxconn, right? Because number one, they have a large network. Right? We're talking about billions of dollars of transactions right? onto this this uh, on, on, onto this potential blockchain as well as on, on their supply chain. We're talking about you know direct uh, manufacturers up to ten thousand right or a hundred thousand, actually uh, up to a hundred thousand direct manufacturers they are they're supplying with, and all those indirect ones down the chain. There's there's going to be millions, right? So once you onboard all these people, then what about the other services provided? Right. Then, then you you have more more advantage, right? So maybe you onboard their HR system, which in that case, the employees that they have can then buy houses, right? Because now you on, you start onboarding banks, you start onboarding telcos, you start onboarding, I would say, legal entities, lawyers, and this then becomes an ecosystem that grows larger and larger and larger, and that starts automating. All, all sorts of these kind of transactions, and and that actually makes lives ultimately easier for a lot of people. Uh, take take something like the Chinese visa, right? That the Chinese visa for you in the United States, or for for maybe a Chinese person to go to the United States, the same thing. Is that you need to provide a lot of documentation, some of it from your work, some of it from recommendation letters, all this stuff, and then you need to send in something by paper. You need to wait a few days for this to be chopped, right? Get researched and then get back to you so that you could travel. But something like this, um, you know, uh, in China may even require financial transactions. You may need to put 100,000 RMB in your bank locked, or you may, you need to have some specific associated value of assets, right? Maybe it's a house owned under your name, and you need to get this notarized and locked before the U.S. government will even, you know, consider giving you a visa. 
imagine all of this are on top of a blockchain. That means all of this information is available. It just needs to follow the right programs and protocols to understand when to provide what information um, at what secrecy, right? Or what, what authentication scheme. And based on this, then um, everything happens much faster. So I do think if the world, uh, the, the world is on top of blockchain, then many things that we find slow today our future kids right, may may find it to happen very very quickly. Um, yeah, that's. I, I can. I, yeah, sorry. I can give you a, a a a very very interesting scenario. So when I was in Amsterdam on a blockchain conference, right, or I was speaking at a blockchain conference, one of the presenters actually had had a very very interesting blockchain applications. They were taking Amsterdam's um, entire electrical system. Because in general, in order to provide electricity funding uh, on an electrical system, you need a backup battery. And uh, this this backup battery may be five million megawatts, right, for a for a city like Amsterdam. And they're taking this and they're distributing it, right. So they're no longer building the backup battery, but they're putting logic on top of blockchain, but via programs in the batteries that we have today. Maybe it's in your Tesla, maybe it's in your TV, maybe it's everywhere, right? So when the when the city then needs emergency electricity, instead of, um, you know, charging these batteries, they actually unload these batteries back onto the electrical grid so that the, 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 uh, the, the electricity will actually go somewhere. Right? This is an interesting use of a blockchain, but one step further is that they say, okay, so eventually in the future, if Tesla supports self-driving, let's say you're sleeping and somewhere else in the city is going to or about to experience a blackout, right? if you let your car automatically decide on your behalf, then your car could wake up, drive to that part of the city, unload half of its battery, make some money for you because you know you're saving the, the 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 city a lot of backup battery and all these costs come back to your garage and charge right because there's there's more uh, electricity in inside this part of the city which in that case then um you know your, your car now can automatically via ai make a decision to make money for you and start driving around all right these, these are super interesting concepts that are available via blockchain because blockchain facilitates and automates business processes. And and today, you know, the majority of our, our lives are, are, are the, the slowness of our lives is actually based on these business processes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, it's absolutely amazing, I think, kind of what, what you're describing. Um, it's funny because these days it seems everyone's kind of paying attention to, you know, the ICOs and kind of what's happening with Bitcoin and, and things like that when – um, the truly, uh, you know, world-changing applications are are in some in some ways a bit more boring in a, in a way, uh, because but but at the same time you think about the implications of all that automation and we're looking at um, as you were saying you know a much uh, a faster um, instant kind of kind of world that that we could possibly live in. Um, whether or not you know that's necessarily desirable, I think is is a bit of a different question. Personally, I, I kind of wish sometimes things were were a bit slower. Um, but certainly, you know, applying for visas and and you know purchasing things um, like having having a way to do that faster, um, do that you know it, with to you know lower the friction to almost zero. 
um, the the possibilities once after you do that are are um, staggering. In fact, well, Ling, you know, again, thank you so much for for taking the time. Uh, we realize that you're you're pretty busy, um, but it was great. It's a great conversation about uh, Dian Rong, about fintech, um, and also um, you know a whole bunch of other stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you guys as well. It's a uh, it's a great pleasure chatting with you guys. And uh, to our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you took the time to leave a review on iTunes, or if you're on uh, Pocket Casts or um, Overcast, you can just uh, press that star button, and uh, it'll give us, it'll recommend um, our this episode to uh, all of your friends. It's a great way to show your support. Mm-hmm.